Our scripture reading is from the 19th chapter of the Gospel of John. John 19, yesterday we looked at the third word from the cross, the word of love and compassion. Woman, behold your son. Disciple, behold your mother. And today we will look at the sixth word from the cross. The Gospel of John has three words from the cross. I am thirsty as well. Matthew and Mark have only, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Gospel of Luke has, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Today you will be with me in paradise. We are looking at the sixth word of the cross that is remembered in this stained glass window to my left, to your right. You notice there, as you can see from where you're seated, it is finished. The word from the cross with Christ on the cross. John chapter 19, beginning to read in verse 28. Listen carefully, this is God's word. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished, and so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge on it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Let's pray together. Lord God, I thank you for this moment of meditation and reflection in this household of faith in Christ. I pray for your blessing upon this congregation as we attend to your word. Lord God, may you form within us that gospel that transforms and changes our lives in a way that shapes, that's guided and directed and shaped by your word. We ask this in the name of the Spirit of Christ, to the glory of the Father, and in the power of the Son. Amen. Jesus had walked all the way from Galilee to Jerusalem. And then on Palm Sunday, he ended his walk and got on a donkey to walk, to to ride in on the last two miles. The Prince of Peace approached Jerusalem in humility, riding on a donkey. He didn't come charging into Jerusalem riding on a stallion, but humbly rode on a colt that had never been ridden before, but because the colt was by his mother, he was at peace. The crowd, men and women, boys and girls, are shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Lord, save us. This is a very deliberate, intentional demonstration on Jesus' part. N.T. Wright makes the point that the crowds have accompanied Jesus, pilgrims heading to Jerusalem for the Passover, and they have been caught up in the exuberance that surrounded Jesus. They meet with crowds from Judea, from Jerusalem, that wonder what all the commotion is about. The crowd that is going to shout, crucify him, crucify him, N.T. Wright believes is the crowd from Jerusalem that has been incited by the religious leaders. And that will come in a few days. This welcoming that conforms to the prophecy of Zechariah 500 years before, 
is a welcoming that so characterizes how Jesus invites us to the gospel. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This riding in on a donkey in all humility and gentleness embodies the kind of invitation that God gives to us in his gospel. He is the king that has come, but not the king to just take charge and take over and impose, but the king who has truly come to save. If there is any word that was on Jesus' mind, of the words that he uttered from the cross, on the cross, I think it would be this sixth word, it is finished. It's that word, it is finished, that is not in the moment. You know, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Today you will be with me in paradise. Woman, behold your son. Disciple, behold your mother. I thirst. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. All of those words are very much right then and now. But it is finished, brings to a climax, this long salvation history story. He's approaching the finish line. He's crossing the finish line. And here's the most radical paradox of all, namely that it is the death of Jesus that means life for us. But it all depends on who says it is finished. And what exactly is finished as Jesus lies dying on the cross? And then what is the impact of that finishing? You see, in one sense, it'd be a lot easier to look at the cross from a humanistic standpoint and see in Jesus either a victim or a hero or a martyr, an innocent man who dies, a horrendous, cruel death. But it doesn't seem that if you're tracking with salvation history and with how God has revealed himself, that you and I can begin to look at the cross in that humanistic fashion. C.S. Lewis says if Christianity was something that we were making up, of course we could make it easier. But it's not. We cannot compete in simplicity with people who are inventing religions. How could we? We are dealing with fact. And you see, this cross runs counter to kind of palatable beliefs. Beliefs that would be easy to accept. One has to come to the conclusion that the one who is saying it is finished is none other than the one and only Savior. And Jesus has said things, he's gone on record. All things have been committed to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. No one knows the Father except through the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Or I and the Father are one. And it's for that reason that he hangs on the cross, because that is judged to be blasphemy. Or I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Or in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld the glory of God. 
So it is who is dying on this cross that makes all the difference in the world. Securing our salvation was on the mind of Jesus from the very beginning. As he said, I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. And this is why Luke records as Jesus heads to Jerusalem that Jesus was resolute in setting out for Jerusalem. That the purpose of his ministry has been to provide this atoning sacrifice. Or after Peter made this confession, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, Jesus goes on to explain how he must go to Jerusalem and suffer and die. This is why he instituted the Lord's table in the upper room. This cup is the new covenant that I pour out with my blood. Or in Gethsemane, Father, Father, please take this cup from me. So the cross looms large in the significance of a sacrifice provided by this unique incarnate Son of God. The Heidelberg Catechism. Question one reads, what is your only comfort in life and death? Answer, that I belong, body and soul, in life and in death, not to myself, but to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. It is finished. My son-in-law, Patrick King, is a pastor in Michigan now. He was raised in a nominally Christian home. They went to church on Christmas and Easter and tried to be good. He was a perplexed young man trying to figure out just what salvation and following Jesus meant. He went to the Wheaton Christian Academy because he was a soccer player. That was about the only reason he went there. But he met up with some Christians and he got into a Bible study. And on his own, he was reading the Gospel of John. Very perplexed with his family background as to what he believed. And he came to this passage in John 19. And for some spirit-led reason, these words, it is finished, climaxed in his thinking. That Christ had done it. Everything that was needed for salvation was provided in him. And Patrick was deeply moved by this. Shaken by it, satisfied by it, provided for by it. He was a sophomore in high school, had not a clue about Greek, but he wanted to discover the Greek word for finished. Tetelestai. He was so taken by that word tetelestai that he wanted it tattooed on his body. My daughter is very thankful that he didn't follow through with that because it's ten letters. Is the Lord your faithful Savior? And do you not, do you see the cross, not humanistically, but in the light of the one who said it is finished? And we also believe that there is a singular sacrifice that is finished on the cross by this Savior. That he fulfilled in his death 
The sacrifice that had been pointed to by all of those images and types and prophecies, beginning with Abel, through Abraham with knife in hand standing over Isaac, through the Exodus and the Passover, the institution of the tabernacle, that all of these images from ash heap theology and Job to the suffering servant in Isaiah, that all of them point to this singular sacrifice made. And that we may not be able to understand all that is involved in that. It does remain something of a mystery, but we realize it's not transactional, it's transformational. But when he says it is finished, it reminds us that we all like sheep have gone astray and turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And we say, Amen. Or from the Apostle Peter, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. And by his wounds, we are healed. It is finished. That singular sacrifice has now been made. I remember being in a presbytery meeting in which a candidate for the ministry was being interviewed. He was being asked about the significance of the cross. He explained it very well. And one of our older pastors stood up and said, you don't mean... To say that you believe in the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ, do you? Isn't that barbaric? An anachronism that one cannot believe in the modern era. Well, that's exactly what we mean. That we needed that sacrifice in the mystery of the Godhead to take away the guilt to take away all that is involved in our sin and to remove that from us. That's exactly what we're saying. And that only one person could do it, the Savior. To provide for us a necessary salvation. C.S. Lewis again says, We believe that the death of Christ is just that point in history at which something absolutely unimaginable from outside shows through into our own world and has changed everything. Some of you may remember the old movie Goodwill Hunting. Will is a young man who was tragically abused by his father and therefore cannot accept love and always expects to be abandoned. He's in therapy with an actor played uh, with an actor who uh, Robin Williams, who plays a therapist. And in a crisis point in the movie, Robin Williams confronts Will, played by Matt Damon. And the therapist says to Will, it's not your fault. It's not your fault. And he's moved closer Nose to nose, eye to eye, it's not your fault. And Will, by this point, is angry and tearful and upset, and he's breaking down. And I think it's at that point in the movie where all of us would like not to identify so much with the therapist, but with Will, and it be told to us, it's not your fault. 
But as much as we might like that, and as I think that this therapeutic moment in the movie is wonderful and great and very valid, at the end of the day, that's not an adequate response to our own sinful nature. To the war that is within us and the separation that we have experienced from God and from one another, we can't be told it's not your fault. But against that, we are told by our Savior, it's finished. It's finished. I've done it. I have done that which you need in order to have this grace-filled, mercy-receiving life. Charles Spurgeon said, we've got to take this message, it is finished, and we have to declare it everywhere. Go tell those who are torturing themselves, thinking that through obedience and mortification they can somehow earn their salvation. Go to the false worshiper and say, cease. God neither asks nor accepts any other sacrifice than the sacrifice that Christ has offered. Go to the churchgoer who feels that by attending church services and doing good deeds, he or she is making himself more acceptable to God. Say, will you pin your filthy rags, your rags to the fine linen of Christ's righteousness? Go to the poor, despising wretch who's given himself up for death, who feels that he's worthy only of damnation, and tell them, you can escape, it's finished, Christ has provided. Go to the poor souls who love the Savior but do not have assurance for their salvation, and announce to them, It is finished. Not a transaction, but a salvation that's transformational. A salvation that is broad and wide and deep, that expresses the love of Christ, that is deliverance and protection and freedom. But then I wonder, and this is where I would take the text to the table. What if in the light of the one and only Savior, speaking of the singular sacrifice, providing the necessary salvation. What if to that it is finished, we were to say, well, no, it's not finished. I need something other than salvation. I I need success. Or what if in the light of the sacrifice we say, well, no, uh, the sacrifice isn't that big a deal. I need a salary. And what if in the light of this one and only Savior, we say, well, no, sex is really more important than a Savior. What if we were to say back to Jesus who says, it is finished? No, I don't think so. I've bought into the myth of the evolutionary zenith, and I'm not about to define my life by something that took place in the first century on a cruel cross. Yeah, there's no palatable belief here. There is the radical revolutionary, revelational truth of Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son of God, who came and paid that price to bring us into a reconciled fellowship with the triune God. Bach says it more comfortingly. In his St. John Passion, these ten or twelve lines, listen. My priceless Savior... Let me ask this question. When cross-nailed, you are so diminished, 
Say you yourself that all is finished. Have I, in fact, from death been freed? Through your despair and desolation, am I myself assured salvation? There, all the world's salvation too? In your deep pain, you speechless bled, yet when you just now bowed your head, it seems in fact that, yes, you said. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we thank you that it is finished, and we live in the light of that grace and that mercy that you and you alone have provided for us. We thank you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.